Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. Our guest today is Kathleen Lopez, the author of Chinese Cubans, A Transnational History. The book was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2013, and the following year, it won the Gordon Kay and Sybil Lewis Prize from the Caribbean Studies Association. Drawing from both Chinese and Spanish sources, the book traces waves of migrations of Chinese people into Cuba and examines the impact of those migrations in China. The combined methods of microhistory, labor history, and transnational history yield fascinating stories and challenge many received narratives about what it meant to be Cuban or Chinese in the 19th and 20th centuries. Hi, Kathy. Thanks so much for being with me today. Hi, Alejandra. I'm very happy to be here. So can we start by having you say a little bit about yourself? How did you come to be a historian and how did you come to this this project? Um, Okay, well, currently I'm a professor at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and I have a joint appointment in the Department of Latino and Hispanic Caribbean Studies, which is an interdisciplinary department, and the Department of History, which is um, the discipline that I received my doctoral training in. Um, And I specialize in the Asian diaspora in Latin America and the Caribbean, and particularly the Chinese. Um, So I'm originally from New York, but I grew up in Miami alongside Cuban immigrants. And while growing up, it never occurred to me that among both the older and more recent Cubans were people of Chinese descent. Um, So years later, my point of entry into the study of Chinese in Cuba actually came from traditional area studies. I did a a master's in Asian studies at Cornell University, and I actually thought I would go into um, public policy or foreign affairs um, for the U.S. government uh, working on China. And so I ended up entering the doctoral program in modern East Asian history at the University of Michigan. And there I became interested in the role of Chinese overseas or the Chinese diaspora in China's modernization, and which happened over the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and as I kind of delved deeper into the topic, I, I came across a collection of published testimonies of Chinese indentured laborers in Cuba, which were originally taken in 1874 at the end of the horrific coolie trade. And Um, Interestingly, I came upon the volume while browsing the stacks of the library at Michigan, which I think students rarely do today. Um, And I, you know, I then kind of realized that a thorough training in the history of European colonialism and African slavery in Latin America and the Caribbean was going to be critical to really understanding the experiences on the ground of the Chinese in Cuba. And so I kind of gradually became, began my own migration to the field of Latin American and Caribbean studies, and then eventually um, to Asian American and ethnic studies. Um, so while my training was in history at Michigan, and, and I continue to um, mostly base my work on archival work, I, I really try to incorporate an interdisciplinary approach. Thank you. And that explains one of the wonderful and unusual aspects of this book, which is that you work both in Chinese and Spanish language documents. Right. And that 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 really sort of enhances the the entire aspect of this book, because I, I don't think that very many people are actually doing that. So the book, as I see it, is framed by three themes. One is transnational history, so that both Cuba and China are in the frame and each impacts the other. The second is labor history, and what you do is extend coolie labor into the into post-emancipation settings. And then finally, you use microhistory to look at a, a small place to get at big processes. And, and in particular, you're looking at the city of Cienfuegos and and individuals and particular families. So I'm wondering how all of these are necessary to the story you wanted to tell and in what ways are they departures from from the literature and what's already been done on this topic? 
Sure. Um, yeah, but I think that's exactly uh, dead on about the three sort of historical themes and approaches that um, that are are interwoven throughout the book. So um, the first transnational history, um, really, I draw upon a lot of the work that was done recently in you know past couple of decades or so in sociology on immigration studies and international migration um, to see migration as more than a one-way process and to look beyond assimilation and incorporation and look at ties that migrants maintain to their hometowns or, or home countries. Um, most of this work has been actually with present day migrants and dominated by you know things like Mexican migration or Caribbean migration to the United States. And um, so I found a lot of evidence of the same kinds of transnational processes among Chinese migrants to Cuba in the beginning of the 19th century. Um, so even though it was difficult for indentured laborers to return home, it was quite impossible. Um, they did maintain, if they could get manage to get out of indenture, they would maintain, um, you know, elements of Chinese culture and um, certainly a, a, an emotional attachment to their homeland. Um with labor history, uh, the um, most of the work that had been done on inde Asian indentured laborers in Latin America and the Caribbean was really restricted to the period of, in of indentured labor itself. And very few studies looked at what happened when migrants um, were able to get out of their contracts. So in the case of the British Caribbean, indentured labor actually goes all the way up to 1918, uh, mostly of um, people from India, um, although there were um, a couple of, uh, about 20,000 Chinese too. Um, and so um, understandably, most of the scholarship focused on the, the experiences of indenture. But in the case of Cuba and Peru, the period of indentured labor ends in 1874. And according to the statistics we have, about half of the laborers who were brought over either died on the plantations or uh, escaped and went to another Caribbean country or tried to make it back home. Um, so my first question was, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> My first question was, <clears throat> sorry about that. My first question um, that I asked myself was what happened to the 50% or so that, that remained and that survived the contracts, especially in a male dominated migration where there were very, very few Chinese women brought over. Um, so there must have been intermixing with the local population. Um, so I think I, I take labor history to sort of move beyond the Cooley period um, into the 20th century, but also really try to avoid making this strict uh, demarcation between what we call labor migrants and entrepreneurial migrants that you find in some of the sociological literature. And I really see a, a lot of, by, by taking a micro-historical approach, and this links up to the third um, theme, but I really see a lot of evidence of uh, people who worked in sugar plantation initially, but also had a side business um, and um, were able to move into um, make, move into their own small businesses by the end of the 19th century, even if that business didn't involve having a brick and mortar store. So it could have been something as simple as growing in, and um, selling vegetables. Um, and then the micro historical approach, I actually tried to employ on both sides, uh, both in China and in Cuba. So in Cuba, I do look instead of um, Havana, where most of the work that had been published in Cuba focused on the Barrio Chino today or Chinatown today in Havana and the history of the institutions there. Um, I, I looked where you don't find many traces today. If you were to walk around Cienfuegos, which is a port city on the southern um, southern part of the island, um, but I kind of followed the migrants themselves. So um, after the end of slavery in um, Cuba, a lot of former indentured laborers and slaves are kind of migrating eastward and settling in um, sugar towns. And so that that's where I decided to focus. Um, I didn't know if there would be any sources when I first went down there. And what I found was that uh, they were just kind of, you know, what we might say are invisible or hidden. 
So no archival sources would be labeled Chinese or Asian indentured laborers, but you would kind of find them interspersed with all the other kinds of archival sources you'd find for, say, Afro-Cubans or, um, you know, any other kinds of historical processes going on. Um, And then same thing for China. I, I focused on the cluster of sending villages and counties in Guangdong province that sent most of the Chinese laborers to the Americas in the 19th century. So instead of looking at China as a whole or the even the count, the uh, province as a whole, I looked at um, a couple of these districts, mostly Taishan and Xinhui. Thank you so much. And I think that a lot of these things are going to come back in the conversation. I was particularly fascinated by the arguments about vegetables, the presence and and introduction of vegetables, but also this idea that um, the the sources didn't have sort of files about Chinese portioned off. And that actually becomes one of the arguments of your book is that is the ways that the Chinese formed networks within Cuban society, not as separate enclaves. But before we do that, and as we move into part one, can we just go um, go back a little bit and, and talk a, a little bit about the origins of coolie labor and the nature of it? I think one of the arguments that you're trying to make is that in some ways it was quite close to slave labor. So how was it the same and, and how was it different? And, and really, what was the substance of coolie labor? Yeah, so this is actually, I think, still an ongoing debate in the scholarship, um, but it's uh, there's been a lot of great work done recently that um, I think would support either side of, of this debate. Um, for a long time, the uh, general view was that coolie labor was actually something different, that it was the, the beginnings of uh, experiments with wage labor, um, kind of, you know, jumping onto cap- late 19th century capitalism, and um, and that it and it was um, they were brought in as as white laborers. So in Cuba, in particular, the Chinese were were labeled as white because um, they were brought in under the same laws that brought in and regulations that brought in Spanish immigrants. Um, so the the uh, contracts were based off these pre-existing contracts with European um, laborers. So certainly if you look at 19th century documents, you find a lot of discourse that th- this coolie labor is the beginning of something free, but you also find a lot of critiques of it early on. And um, the, uh, the how it was different was that it, either in the British Caribbean, the contracts were generally five years, and in the Spanish Caribbean, Cuba, uh, uh, Cuba and also Peru, which um, is an independent nation by now, the contracts are uh, eight years, so a little bit longer. Um, so the, so the, signing a contract makes it distinct than slave labor. Technically, the sale was for the contract itself, not for the person. Um, whereas in, in under African slavery, the um, it's the person that is considered property and, and for sale. Um, the major difference, too, that I find is that uh, the uh, status of coolie labor was not inheritable, whereas under slavery, as you know, the, um, the status followed the mother. So if you were born to a slave mother, you would automatically become a slave unless you, know, you, you found a way to get out of it or toward the end of slavery when, when the laws were changed a little bit. Um, so that, that's the, you know, the technical differences check after the contract ended, uh, both whether even in the Indo-Caribbean, um, but also the, uh, in, in Chinese cube experiences, they should have been able to either return home with a passage paid for by the government or, um, uh, stay as a free, uh, person in in uh, whatever country they were in. And so here's where the kind of distinction falls apart, because in the case of Cuba, um, beginning about 1860, Chinese were forced to sign another contract known as recontracting. And uh, the same thing happens in Peru. And they were... um, you know, forced to sign another contract for eight years, maybe even a third contract, depending on what year it was. And it really belies the, you know, the, the, the idea that these are free laborers. There was no way, no provision for a former indentured laborer to then become a, um, you know, a, a free person in Cuba. Um, 
Lisa Yun has a wonderful book called The Coolie Speaks, and it deals with the experiences of Chinese indentured laborers alongside African slaves. And um, she, you know, I think she's the one who really uh, takes apart and knocks down this idea that that Chinese were um, indeed free laborers. And she, and how she does this is by examining what how the contract itself was used. Um, so the con- by this recontracting process, they were actually used to enslave um, Chinese. Um, I think she refers to them as mobile slaves in her book. Um, so they were also working basically side by side with slaves, right? So in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, the daily regimes were very similar. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So often on plantations, it, it, it varied from plantation to plantation, but um, on smaller plantations, you might have overwhelmingly coolie labor. There were some planters that wanted to really kind of experiment and would hire be a small plantation, but they might, might hire 50 or so of them. Um, on others, it would just be a small gang. Um, but they were working in the same kinds of jobs, often side by side. Um, and they were, you know, also used in, in a racial way to create divisions and, and to try to prevent solidarity um, between, you know, similarly oppressed people. Um, right. So moving through this section, when slavery comes to an end eventually and then new labor regimes emerge, because, of course, there's still a, d- a demand for labor. So what's the nature of the cuadrillas? You talk about those as the, the thing that comes next to replace coolie labor. Right. So the, the cuadrillas actually began um, early on before the indentured labor system ends. And the quadrillas were, be- were begun by uh, Chinese indentured laborers who got out of indenture, managed to get out of their contract, and would hire other free Chinese and then rent them out to um, planters. And the uh, Spanish government actually tried to squelch these whenever they popped up. Um, because they had a, these quadrillas had a lot of autonomy. They were also known for kind of harboring runaway coolies, um, and so uh, so it wasn't really until after the end of the indentured period. So this is you know the the period of indentured labor ends in 1874. Some co- some Chinese are still working out their contracts through the early 1880s. So right about that time you have a lot of quadrillas popping up. And this is, again, where I take that micro-historical approach and look not only in the Cienfuegos region, but really try to look closely at what's going on on one plantation. And this was Soledad Plantation, um, which was um, managed by Edwin Atkins, who was an American from Boston. Um, and, and there it was just, you know... Um, uh, good fortune that, that we have wonderful sources, which is the set of plantation correspondence between the manager of the estate and the owner back and forth for, you know, about 15 years. And, and we really get a sense of the daily running of the plantation. And what I found was that the, um, the quadrillas managed by Chinese had a, a real impact in uh, keeping up sugar production when other forms of labor either weren't reliable or management didn't want to pay them enough. Because this is also the time when African African slavery is slowly ending toward the um, end of the 1880s. Right. And one of the arguments that you make that, that I found very intriguing was that the people who controlled these cuadrillas um, were able to do so through food in part, right? And right. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure, sure. Um, so food becomes very, very important, um, as we all know. And um, But it becomes important for um, keeping as an incentive. So it, it's a sort of a fine line between control and incentive. But um, one of the things the manager says on this plantation in Cienfuegos is that it's the Chinese contractor who's always able to furnish his men with um, enough food and the right kind of food. So the manager found that, it, you know, it, it, although he would have preferred to have the contractor purchase food directly from the plantation, the, the typical plantation store, he found that the um, the Chinese quadrilla head 
was actually able to keep his men better if he if he were the one in charge of um, the cooking. And so he didn't cook himself. He would hire out a Chinese cook, but you could then have fresher vegetables. Um, the, the complaints from the men were that, you know, they didn't want to eat dried beef and they wanted, you know, more fresh vegetables. And this is also why usually a lot of these quadrillas would show up all over the, the Caribbean and Latin America, but also in the U.S. South, you have them. And they sort of always, they develop a reputation for, you know, growing in those kind of small plots alongside the big plantation, um, growing their own vegetables. That's really fascinating. And it's really interesting to think about the ways that Cuban foodways and landscapes were actually changed by this labor regime and in the ways that, that they changed the habits and the bodies of, of non-Chinese Cubans in the process. I also see a lot of parallels actually with here in Vancouver, because we, we also had lots of Chinese farmers who came in and changed the way that people ate here in this part of the world. So, um, so once emancipated and moving on through the book, you, you, you talk about the ways that they formed families, right? So there were these, there were, like you said before, a majority of men. And once they start to remain in Cuba, they start to, uh, intermarry, right? And have children. And so there's a kind of really interesting dual dynamic, right? So on the one hand, they they start to have children, they change their names, and they generally form networks with other Cubans. And one part of the argument is that they created networks rather than remaining in an enclosed enclave. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that. And then we'll get to the second part of the of the tension that I that I see in this part of the book. Okay. Uh, sure. Yeah. And this is, again, something that I, I'm, in a sense, writing against is this portrayal um, that you find in some of the more traditional works of Asian American history, that Asians were clannish, um, lived in Chinatowns. Um, others say, well, they were pushed into Chinatowns because of discrimination. Um, and what I found, especially when you look beyond Havana and into the provinces, is a high, high degree of intermixing with local women, um, some official marriage and some just kind of um, common law marriage, but people forming families, um, people forming work arrangements. So, for example, one of the um, family histories that I traced throughout the book is of an indentured laborer whose Spanish name became Pastor Pelayo. And um, he ends up purchasing the freedom of an African uh, slave, an African descendant slave um, in Cienfuegos. And uh forming a family with her, but then also helping her to purchase the freedom of her brothers. And then even beyond that, moving into a work arrangement where with them, where he has his own quadrilla of Chinese laborers, but then he sets both of the brothers up with quadrillas of uh, former slaves into the 1890s. Um, you also have a lot of moving back and forth. Um, and again, the, the microhistorical local approach really helps to visualize this, but they move from on a daily, even weekly, monthly basis from plantations into town and back again. And both of them start to settle, both groups, um, Afro, Afro-descended Afro people and, and Chinese, start to settle in these areas right off of the central parts of town, um, sort of near the docks and the railroads. And so they have easy access to the markets. Um, and, uh, you know, houses are literally one right after the other. Uh, so, you know, of course, there is ethnic conflict and, um, you know, other kinds of conflicts that are that are happening in the late 19th century. But it's also there, there's a lot of patterns of of really becoming local fixtures in in neighborhoods across Cuba. And I guess I would, you know, take this argument even further. And the more I start to read about and learn about Asian American history, and specifically Chinese American history, where that discourse about clannishness really took root, you all you do find instances of a lot of intermixing. So, for example, Chinese and um, Irish women, in particular, um, in New York City. Um, and, uh, you know, or Chinese in the U.S. South, where there were fewer Chinese. And so there, there's a higher degree of intermixing with, um, with former slaves in the U.S. South. 
So that's really fascinating. And it, and it relates to the second part of the equation, which has to do with the arrival and activities of the wealthier merchants. And these wealthier right. merchants, you argue, create these institutions that in some ways reinforce ties to China. So there are newspapers, there are theaters, there are mutual aid societies, there are religious practices. And in some ways, I'm wondering if you can talk about the ways that those two are not incompatible in the ways that they're part of the same dynamic. So on the one hand, you have um, Chinese people working themselves into networks that are already in place in Cuba and creating new networks. But then on the other hand, uh, reinforcing their ties to, to, to China with these new institutions. Are, are those incompatible? Right. Are they contradictory? No, I mean, they're actually, it's, they're part of the same process. So on the one hand, um, there's the, the newer wave of migrants are coming in. So some scholars actually describe this as a third wave of Chinese migration. I kind of delineate between two different waves, the 19th century coolie trade, and then the 20th century influx of laborers that come in after 1917. Um, but there were a, a, a probably about 5,000 Chinese that came in um, from California or through a port in California in around the 1870s and 1880s. And they were of a very different class. They were of a, a merchant class already. Um, they may have had transnational businesses that spanned, you know, Hong Kong, San Francisco, Lima, Peru, Havana. And then they end up going to Cienfuegos to set up a local branch. Um, they, they had the means to go back and forth. Uh, so they already were able to maintain those connections back home. It's also that time, you know, again, to my, my original point of entry into this was uh, China's modernization in the late 19th century. So it's a time when nationalism is really uh, burgeoning in, in China. And so um, th these institutions begin to uh, develop from not only um, a regional attachment or a local attachment back to a hometown, back to a district or a, a family, a clan organization. Um, but, but then to kind of take on national political overtones. Um, at the same time, many of these merchants who have families in China are also developing families in Cuba. And this is something that's you know, not uncommon for many different kinds of migrants groups, but especially for the Chinese. Um, so as they're um, establishing these these institutions, um, it, it's a way of sort of maintaining Chinese culture and keeping that attachment. But it didn't mean that the merchant would necessarily end up returning to um, China. Um, but the other thing I, I'd like to point out is uh we, we have a lot of information through those available sources on these kind of bigger organizations, political organizations, theaters, um, um, you know, ethnic standard ethnic organizations, which were known as Huiguan in Chinese. Um, but what I found was that even the, in, the former indentured laborers were able to start their own kinds of cultural organizations. So, for example, Pastor Pelayo, who had come in 1959, by the time he gets out of his contract and then recontracts and has his quadrilla of men, um, he, he just decides to set up a small theater. And he really became a local fixture, um, even though he wasn't one of these big transnational merchants. So he decides to set up a small theater outside of his um, his uh, his home, and he's denied permission to do that because of an, an ordinance on um, wood construction. Um, and so he, he pursues, and he ends up just uh, setting up this theater on his porch. And so he, he was, you know, he overlapped with this these newer kinds of migrants that are coming in of a higher class, um, but he also, he also, uh, you, you know, had kind of stronger and more deeply embedded ties to the Cuban, uh, to Cuban society. Right. That's really fascinating to think about how that dynamic works. And I like the way that you're trying to break down that boundary between sort of thinking of people integrated into Cuban society and also, um, fostering the ties back home. And one of the interesting things that, that you argue is that 
some of those institutions are supported, in fact, by the Qing dynasty back in China, but it, but in fact, they end up fostering this nationalist sentiment that's eventually going to support the overthrow of that dynasty, right? So there's this kind of right. irony about that process. But before we move to the next part, I want to pick up on something that you've mentioned a couple of times, and that is the, the individuals that you managed to trace in the archives. And there's some really fascinating stories. The one of Pastor Pelayo is one of them. There's one of the man with the two sets of daughters, one in China and one in Cuba, and the ways that they, they actually, the daughters correspond with one another. Right. And then there's also Wilfredo Lam, who's who's better known as uh, as the the Cuban artist, but whose father was a was a calligrapher and who married a woman of African, Spanish and Indian descent and whose seventh child was Wilfredo. And so these these stories of these individuals are really fascinating in and of themselves. But I think that they also make a broader methodological point about how it's possible to do this kind of history and what kinds of strategies to follow. And one particular thing that you do that seems very difficult, but also very necessary is this uh, attention to naming practices and names. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the methodology in general of following these individuals and the the challenges of that methodology, and also the, the things that it yields. Sure, sure. Um, and this, you know, this really applies to both the 19th century and 20th century migrants. But um, for in general, um, I began I began the research in Cuba in 1999, and that was my first kind of exploratory trip. And honestly, people said to me, "Well, I don't know what you'll find down there." And um, it was before the digital age, so I went down with stacks of notepads. Um, Cuba was still in, you know, what was known as a special period where you had to bring your own paper. Um, so about 10 sheets of paper and uh, about 10 audio tapes. And I, I was going to Cienfuegos, not to Havana. And in the local archive, and this is also through Rebecca Scott, who was my uh, advisor at Michigan, I met both descendants of an indentured laborer and a 20th century Chinese merchant. And so I spent a lot of time with both of them um, working through their family histories. And then once I had the information, looking through Chinese sources and and Cuban sources to see, um, you know, if I found anything that, 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 matched up with their own family histories. So, for example, even looking through uh, local newspapers in Cienfuegos in the library from the 1920s and 30s, I found a lot of mentions of the uh, 20th century uh, uh, Chinese merchant who had come over and, um, you know, was able to corroborate by the address or the, you know, other, the workplace or other kinds of things like that. The, um, this, I mean, this is something, it, it, it's a difficult methodology, it's time-consuming, but it really yields great results. And, um, you know, another example would be um, Antonio Chufat Latour, who's, who was an Afro-Chinese Cuban, and he was uh, born to a, a Chinese merchant in Cuba, but we, we don't know much about his mother. And he became, uh, you know, very important as uh, for Afro-Cuban associations, especially in the uh, wake of independence. But he also served as a translator for the Chinese organizations. And um, when I when I looked at, again, at local records, for example, a local census, I found his name there. When I was looking through um, letters written in the National Archive to Cuba, the, the preserved letters to um, one of the Cuban generals in the wars for independence, I found a letter from him, an Afro-Chinese Cuban, you know, mixed descent, um, writing to express his hopes for the new republic. Um, so it, it's, you know, it's painstaking and it's, it, you know, you could argue that so, so there, these are just stories, uh, but the fact that each of these stories is distinct and, um, you know, has quite a kind of a different trajectory makes it very difficult to generalize about this central question of what does it mean to be Chinese Cuban or what's a Chinese Cuban identity. Um, you know, I, I found that, it, that you really can't pinpoint it to one, you know, one kind of set of characteristics. Right. And the, it's the, 
the character of Antonio Chufa is really fascinating because he then becomes a historian, right? And he writes right. a text in 1927, it's a history of the Chinese in Cuba. I, I, I really enjoyed reading about him. So the second section of the book takes us through the wars of independence and the sugar boom that followed. And one of the really interesting things that you do is you talk about the ways that the Chinese joined the multiracial army under the auspices of the ideology of racelessness, right? That, that right. Murthy promotes, but also you talk about their roles as as doctors and as innkeepers and as provisioners to the army. And so the ways that they're really networked into, to the, to the efforts of the wars of independence, the same time, so that in some ways the markers of race fade, but they never really disappear. And then at the same time, immediately after the wars of independence, uh, immigration increases, and then there's a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment, right? So there's this kind of dynamic, this dual dynamic that you that you trace through the early years of the Republic. And I'm wondering if you can take us through that a little bit. Sure, sure. Yeah, so these chapters four and chapter five, it's really, I think, this the core of the book and of the maybe, you know, the central argument of the book about the role of the Chinese in the Cuban nation. And um, so in chapter four, it's, it's, um, it, it, it deals mostly with the Chinese in the Cuban wars for, uh, for independence from Spain. And there has actually been a lot of good Cuban scholarship on this based on um, memoirs written by participants in the struggle for liberation. Um, but so there, so these were, it's, you know, two or three works published out of Cuba. So we have a good sense of what they were doing, um, you know, where they were, which battles they fought in. Um, but I kind of did a rereading of these texts. And this is where I think some of the interdisciplinary nature of the work comes through. And, um, what I noticed was, in all of these texts, some of which are published in the early 20th century, some of which are published in the 1960s after the Cuban Revolution, the Chinese are really portrayed in a certain way. And it's a, a very sort of apolitical way. So, so while they, on the one hand, are uh, supporting the wars for independence and loyal and brave, um, the, a, a lot of the discourse t- um, kind of speaks to immediately after the um the uh, Republic was founded the Ch- and, or after the Wars of Independence, um, the Chinese went peacefully back to their homes and back to their lives, you know, kind of producing for the nation, that, that the good model citizen. And I think a lot of this was written as sort of um, a, you know, a, a sort of praise, but as in... Um, as a way of critiquing the, um, you know, the events that happened immediately after independence with the Afro-Cubans, who also had a, you know, more so than the Chinese, had a very heavy presence in the Cuban Wars for Independence. Um, so that continued Afro-Cuban struggle, which, revol- you know, resulted in um, the 1912 uprising and, and massacre and, um, you know, re- refusal to turn in arms, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think it's really written as a as a way to promote racial harmony post revolutionary Cuba, so post nineteen fifty nine. The Chinese are also there, so they're in these roles as you know, as you mentioned, um, innkeepers. Um, providing provisions. But these are also those kinds of supportive roles that Afro-Cubans were usually relegated to. Um, And also, you know, feminine roles that Chinese across the Americas um, took on, Um, you know, washing, doing laundry, um, preparing food. Um, So even though these are, these are very, um, you know, there's a lot of praise for their roles in the, in the independence wars, I think if you look through all these narratives, you, you, you find traces of not quite yellow peril, but just that, that there's a certain position that the Chinese should have in society. Um, they also, as we get into the 20th century, the Chinese merchants are um, def- trying to defend themselves against these anti new anti-Chinese um, entry laws and 
and, and Chinese exclusion laws. And they, so they tap into this discourse and they say, well, you know, we, we've done so much as a people for the Cuban nation. And they actually describe themselves as apolitical. Um, you know, so in other words, you know, if you let us come in here and do our business, we won't cause any trouble for the new nation. And, um, you know, it actually belies what, what's actually happening on the ground, which is that a, a lot of Chinese actually are political and are political not only back home. This is, again, getting into the uh, 20th century stuff. But they're so they're involved with nationalist movements back home, but they're also involved with um, the, the burgeoning Cuban socialist movement in the early 20th century. Um, and I think what I like, what I did in chapter four, this in, initially was one chapter. It was hard to kind of break this apart um, because alongside late 19th, early 20th century, alongside all that writing, you'll always find anti-Chinese discourse among elites and statesmen. Um, so even in, in the late 19th century um, and early 20th century, uh, there's a lot of uh, writing about how the Chinese are a yellow peril. The, these um, ideas circulate from the U.S. And, and come to places like Mexico and Lima and Cuba. Um, but Cuba's also looking to other Latin American nations, um, such as Argentina, for examples of how to use immigration to um, you know, become a strong and prosperous nation and who to exclude on that basis. Um, so in 1902, the, um, Cuba actually adopts a, a Chinese exclusion law um, similar to the U.S. And they, it was a condition for the U.S. withdrawing their troops after the occupation. Um, so but that law's on the books. And then throughout the 20th century, up, up until World War II, you have different um, you know, essays being written, newspaper articles, um, really uh, condemning the, Chinese, the new Chinese laborers who are coming in. Right, and you get the interesting dynamic where the the laws are preventing, supposedly pre- preventing Chinese from coming in, but they're actually coming in anyway because the there's a demand for their labor, right? And so yeah. you get that that's layered on top of the discourses, both the anti-Chinese lab, uh, discourses and the pro-Chinese discourses. So it's really fascinating way that you that you pull all of these together and 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 actually interrogate all of those at the same time. So um, we can we move to the final section and you start that out in Guangdong province. And so suddenly we are not in Cuba anymore. We're in the in the villages that people left. And you talk about the ways that letters and remittances shape the towns and the villages of the of the people who had left. And I was particularly interested in the way that you talk about the role of women in this regard. And it seemed to me that what, one of the things that you were doing was rewriting their role, right? As active participants right. in the story, rather than as kind of victims of this larger process. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. And this is, again, uh, something in um, migration history, because Chinese migrations to the Americas was overwhelmingly male um, in general, but specifically in Cuba. It was, you know, very, very, um, women occupied under 5% of the total migrants, if you if you count 19th and 20th century. So it's really a, a male-dominated population. And actually, this you know, it, it helps to workshop your papers because one of the early critiques I got when I was doing my, uh, you know, the first, I think it was the first conference paper I gave and it was, um, I was a graduate student and I was writing about the Chinese men who worked on the cuadrillas in 19th century in, in Cuba and, uh, and Cienfuegos. And one of the critiques was, you know, what about gender? You, you need to be writing about gender also, even though it's, um, it's a male population. Um, and that's where I really started to focus on these interactions with Afro-Cuban women. So similarly, just because most of the people who are migrating um, are are men, it's really important to look at the other half, the, the women who stayed behind, the women and the children um, and daughters. And um, so I, I, I did this, you know, mostly relying on, secondary sources, people that had done scholarship on local societies in, in Guangdong province, but then also through oral histories and um, some of the, the documentary evidence I found scattered throughout Southeast China on what 
these women were actually doing while the Chinese men were abroad. Um, so in the case of the, the trans-Pacific family of uh, Lui Fan, and his, he had, he's the one who came in the 20th century and had two daughters in Cuba and a family in Cuba and a family in China also. Um, I, I actually spoke to that. I interviewed that family at length and, and, and got a sense of what life was like for their mother. And um, she actually was in, you know, her husband asked her to come with him to Cuba. Once he realized he was really going to stay there for business, um, he, he wanted her to come and she refused. And she said she actually preferred to stay back in, in the village in um, Xinhui County in Guangdong province. And um, her, her, her own mother was sick and she was taking care of her. Um, she wasn't comfortable with the, a new language and culture. Um, and so she really stood her ground. And that's how you ended up with this trans-Pacific family with the sisters on each side. Um, but they, you know, so it, the, the, that chapter deals in particular with um, their role, the women's role in um, the economic um, foundation of these households. So they actually were engaged in small cottage industries. It wasn't that they were only rearing children and taking care of domestic work, although that was happening also. Um, and then they're, you know, uh, through their letters, a lot of the letters are becoming increasingly available now and even digitized um, from the early 20th century. And, the, you know, the letters really give a sense of the daily, you know, what's happening on a day to day basis with the family. But they make sure to always ask for remittances, you know, make sure to that, that the uh, migrant who's gone abroad is sending that stuff home. So, yeah, I, I really liked that part of the book. Um, one of the really interesting things that you do also is that you connect the growing leftist movements on each side. And so on one on the one hand, you have these Chinese supporters of communism in Cuba and Cubans who are increasingly uh, joining leftist movements. But then at the same time, you also you have these Chinese merchants and Cuban elites who are coming together and in these kind of anti-communist moments. And so I'm wondering in, in that instance, and this is a very complicated thing to sort of unpack, but, but that seems like one case in which ideology is actually starts to become more relevant than race or ethnicity at that moment with regards to sort of social solidarity and the politics of being in both China and Cuba when, when there's so much kind of political tumult and, 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 uh, and things, things sort of emerging. Yeah, yeah. So this this chapter, this and this also is kind of one of the benefits of being able to um, read Chinese and have access to some of those materials. Because one of my main sources for this chapter was a memoir by a migrant who came over in the early 20th century and became very involved in um, in nationalist Chinese nationalist politics while he was in Cuba, and he was th- that nationalist party ultimately split into two branches and there was a left-leaning branch of that party um and that that it happened in china but it also reverberated overseas to all of the diasporic communities so he became one of the more you know so-called progressive left-leaning chinese nationalist members and among that group some of them became involved in local uh communist cells and 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 socialist politics. Um, and um, one of them in, partic- in particular named Jose Wong is um, you know, known today in Cuba as a martyr for the, you know, what ultimately became the Cuban revolution. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right that, that uh, Chinese-ness and, and maybe race ethnicity becomes less important now. It's, um, it, it's, it's, um, you know, sort of common, uh, struggles, labor struggles. And it's not something that, you know, the, it's the latter day historian going back and seeing, but the, the Chinese themselves and Cuban themselves are, are writing in their newspapers and essays about the, these common struggles that are happening. They're actually writing about um, how both Cuba and China are new, relatively new republics and make kind of parallels between Jose Marti and in Cuba and um, 
uh, Sun Yat-sen, who was considered the founder of the modern Chinese nation. Um, And so ultimately that does, as, as you mentioned, as we get into the 1930s and 40s, after 1927, the Nationalist Party in China is consolidated under Jiang Kai-shek. And he's the um, the one who ultimately went to battle against uh, Mao in China uh, by by the late 1940s. Uh, so once he consolidates uh, the Nationalist Party there, then um, the Chinese who are left leaning are forced to go underground, both in China and in in uh, Cuba. And um, and then you also have those those layers, the, the really the upper echelons of, of uh, Chinese Cuban society, the the top merchants, the people who are controlling the banks. Um, they they are hand in hand with Cuban politicians and trying to stamp out communism. Um, and this is something that I I don't I don't think it's the main focus of the book. I think I deal more with uh, the early 20th century and and the, those beginnings of the politics, but the Chinese participation in the Cuban revolution of 1959 is something that I think, you know, really a lot of work can still be done on. And Cuban scholars, but also sort of amateur historians have been the ones to really put this together so far. So a lot of the stuff isn't yet published. It's just kind of circulating. Right. And that those connections are really fascinating. I learned so much about the relationships among the two revolutions. I was really interested to read about the ways that the revolution in China in 1949 prompts emigration to Cuba, but then also splits the Cuban, the Chinese Cuban community, as you mentioned. And then um, after that, the revolution in 1959 in Cuba prompts the move of some Chinese Cubans to Miami. So you're tracing these waves of of immigration way beyond the initial sort of coulee stage. And um, I guess I have a a lot of questions about that that moment, but I guess I'll just ask um, one about that brings us back to where you started, which is Miami. And so I'm really curious about how the, the Chinese Cubans experience of Miami differed or was the same from what we know about the kinds of the kinds of narratives that we already have about Cuban experiences of Miami in the post-revolutionary moment. Yeah, so this is this is great because this is actually one of the two new projects that I'm starting to work on more in depth right now. Um, you know, and, and I'm on my sabbatical in the spring, so I'll really be getting into some documentary work with that. Um, the so. Initially, those first waves of Chinese that come over, it actually there's actually a lot of parallels with what we know about the kind of four or five major waves of Cuban emigres to Miami and New York, New Jersey. Um, so the first waves coming 1959, 60, 61, um, really being ex- being forced out, being exiled. Um, all, they almost immediately they they organize with fellow Cubans. Um, for, you know, they, they organize and, and become involved with groups to try to come back and overturn the revolution. Um, they there's um there's some newspaper articles about them and written even by them in local um, exile newspapers. Um, and I think if I you know as I continue to look for that kind of material in the New York New Jersey region, I'll find more of that. Um, at the same time, though, because this is a diasporic Chinese community. So you you also have, you know, people from their same home village or family branch that may have migrated to New York. Um, So at the same time, they have a a wider net. It's it's not merely uh, Miami, New York, New Jersey. So they also may have um, relatives who were in who had fled to Taiwan or to Hong Kong. Um, Where they settle is also different. Um, They they tend not to settle in. Uh, Chinatowns, but they settle around where um, where Cuban communities are, and I found this for both uh, New Jersey, New York, and for Miami. So that's one you know one case where it is similar. Um, as you get by the, by 1968, when uh, small businesses are nationalized in Cuba, you get a second major kind of push of of Chinese. Cubans out out of the country, um, you know, for political and economic reasons. And um, so those are, but but at the same time, I guess I want to emphasize that 
when I first started this project, everyone said, well, you won't find any Chinese in Cuba anymore. They all left after the revolution because they were merchants and couldn't make any money. And I found that most, and this is, I think, corroborated by statistics, but most actually did stay. Um, there was a, you know, a drastic decline, but just like most Cubans ended up staying because it was kind of a wait-and-see attitude, um, these kind of mid-level Chinese merchants decided you know to just just stay where they where they had community um and so by the by the 1970s and 80s that's where you see those merchant communities really in decline in cuba um but you know it was it, it was uh you know kind of the same the same kinds of stories about uh post post-revolutionary experiences where down to the level of family, you get these splits. Um, so, for example, a case of two professionals, one a doctor, one a lawyer, both born in Cuba to, to a Chinese family, ch both Chinese parents, um, and the family actually splits. And one, one brother goes to Miami and the other one stays behind in Cuba up through his death, um, which was just recently. Um, so you, you have a lot of, and there's more than one case of that of, that I that I've located of, you know, entire split families. So these are really entangled histories, and it, yeah. it's it's uh, it, it actually helps me to understand more the wh one of the things that you talk about in the epilogue, which is the present day sort of revitalization of Chinatown and the new relationships that are being built with China today. Um, but I wanted to actually end up. Just touching on the the personal story that you also include in the epilogue, which is when you travel back to China with Mitzi Espinosa, whom I know a little bit, and so I was I was um, just my curiosity was sparked to see her in there. And the story that you tell about the way that she goes back and meets her Chinese relatives, and I I think um, that she was one of the descendants of this person who had the two the two families, right, right, in in. Uh, in both in Cuba and in and in China, and so I'm wondering, just sort of personally, what the legacies are of that trip for for Mitzi herself and for the fields of of the histories of, of Chinese migration and of Cuba. Right, right. So updated even more. Um, yeah, this was you know another um, you know probably the most fulfilling part of writing this book was actually tracing the family histories and meeting Mitzi's family in China. So I, I had made my first research trip in 1999 to Cuba, and that's where I met Mitzi. She was actually a archivist and librarian in the Cienfuegos archive. And she immediately gave me her all of her photos and, and any documentation she had about her family in China and said, you know, the I, I know that my grandfather had two daughters who also lived in China. This is, we have their address. Um, the daughters were writing letters back and forth to the two Cuban daughters, one of them who's Mitzi's mother. Um, but she said that after, shortly after her grandfather died, which I, I believe was 1975, the communication had ceased. It had kind of stopped. And um, they didn't know why. The, the, the Cuban side tried to send letters, but they were kind of sent back. They, they were sent, they, so they assumed that the address had changed. Um, so one of the first things I did, I, I, I knew I wanted to do research in Guangdong province. So I received a Fulbright grant to spend 10 months there in 2001. And one of the first things I did was to track down the family. And it turned out they actually weren't hard to track down at all because they were living in the same village and they even kept that ancestral home of their uh, father, grandfather, uh, Lui Fan. So, um, and, and I had the Chinese characters, so I was e easily able to find it on a map and to also connect with the local overseas Chinese affairs office, which are these, these offices in China that will help mostly uh, descendants of Chinese come back and trace their roots or find their families. Um, so I was able to meet the two now very elderly uh, Chinese daughters of the original migrant, who's Mitzi's grandfather, and also meet their children and their grandchildren. Um, and I also, I was really amazed that I, I found old photos of um, 
Francisco Luis, which was his name, the migrant's name in Cuba, and his Cuban daughters hanging on the wall. And they also referred to these two Cuban daughters as um, third sister and fourth sister, and they were inscribed in the family tablet. So even though they're, the two Cuban daughters are mixed race and were technically half-sisters, they really were incorporated into this trans-Pacific family. Um, so Mitzi had always you know, said to me, I got to know her over several years, and, and she had always expressed that she wanted to go to China. And she said, you know, most Cubans want to go to Spain or the U.S., but for me it was always wanting to go to China. Um, and so I wasn't really able to do this until after I finished my doctorate and was kind of settled in a job. Um, but in 2009, uh, right before I started my position at Rutgers, the, um, there was an international conference in, in uh, Guangdong province in 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 uh, Guangzhou, and Mitzi by now had also been doing a lot of work in Cuba on tracing um, Chinese merchants and, and um, Chinese cultures and cultural organizations. So she had a lot of things that she could present to this meeting. So we arranged for her to um, give a presentation, um, and and then and you know just the bureaucracy of getting her out of. Cuba itself was, you know, kind of a different a different story that required true international, transnational uh, collaboration. Um, things have kind of are much more lax now. But she um, came to the conference, and then a group of us hired a minivan and went down and were able to meet her Chinese family. By this time, the two elderly daughters of the migrant of Mitzi's grandfather had had passed away. And so that was, you know, the, the only sad part about this. But the rest of the, the uh, family met us at the uh, village gate and, um, you know, gave her the hongbao, the red envelopes um, that are traditional in Chinese culture. Uh, a lot of questions for her that were filtered through multiple languages, Cantonese, Mandarin, English, Spanish. Um, we went to his old ancestral home. So she got to see where her grandfather actually lived. And I have some videotape of this. Um, and then Mitzi was able to make an offering at the family shrine. And the, the reverberations of this have been really incredible. When she came back to Havana, so Mitzi, this also ties into what I write about in the epilogue about what, you know, being a Chinese Cuban today. When we speak about Chinese Cuba today, we really mean people of, of mixed descent. Um, it's second, third, fourth generation, you know, maybe people who are a quarter Chinese and eighth Chinese, if you want to get that technical. Um, but she, um, she was, you know, in a position where she wanted to, she wanted to get more involved with the Barrio Chino, Havana's Chinatown. She had already relocated to Havana. And I think always felt that there was a resistance because of the fact that she was third generation, mixed descent, doesn't look Chinese and doesn't speak Chinese. But after this trip, um, when she was able to come back and show the video and show the, you know, show the photos to these elderly uh, Chinese got Cantonese guys in the association, um, they really embraced her in, in a, in a more meaningful way. And she ended up um, joining the, one of the ethnic associations, the main kind of ethnic cultural association there today and becoming an official, she has an official position there now. So it's her job and she's sort of the cultural liaison of the organization. And since then, she's actually been able to travel to conferences in Vancouver, um, in Panama last summer. And she's also been granted a visa to come to the United States. So last, um, last spring, she was able to come to the U.S. for the first time. And it wasn't by it wasn't for an academic thing. It wasn't any something that I had anything to do with. But it, she was invited by a fellow Chinese ethnic organization, a sister organization in California, to participate in um, some traditions and some rituals. And so she actually came on a religious visa. And um, you know, this is something I think that will continue to shape you know not only her life, but then also how she is able to connect this organization in Cuba, you know, of, of kind of Chinese Cubans, many of mixed descent, but able to connect them back with fellow organizations all around the world. Um, mostly because of, you know, her, she's adept at internet um, communication. So she's become part of the story and of the arguments that you make in the book. That's really yeah, yeah. a nice way to, 
to think about it. So we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, you mentioned uh, just before we go, though, you mentioned a little bit about your future project, which sounds like, or right. the, the current project, I guess, sounds like it's an extension of this, but in in um, New York and New Jersey and Miami. Is that right? Yeah. So this is just one piece of it, which is to look at the Cuban diaspora in a, but look, look at and for the diversity of the Cuban diaspora. So in other words, looking in those earlier waves of migrants for the Chinese presence for Afro Cubans. Um, but it's also a way of, I had a lot, I did a lot of interviews with Chinese Cubans in Miami and New York and never really got to incorporate them into the book. Um, so I want to kind of do, do even a deeper, um, um, project on that, where I also get at questions of political affiliation and, and use a variety of sources. This may end up being, you know, a website project or an, or an oral history project, um, something more community based. And then the the second project that I'm kind of getting involved in now is also an extension of this, but it's to look more closely in the in the early 20th century across the Caribbean. And pay attention more to second generation um, and Chinese Caribbean intimacies across the region. So people of mixed descent, um, intermarriages, ways that Chinese became incorporated into local um, and national projects, but, um, you know, very much an on the ground uh, type of examination. And I want to look at places that haven't been covered too much. So there's been a lot of great work done on Chinese in Mexico and on and in Peru. And I'm going to shift the attention more to Dominican Republic, early 20th century, um, and, and later decades in the 20th century. Um, and to um, mostly because it, uh, um, under Trujillo, Asians were actually temporarily welcomed as a way to whiten the nation. Um, and then also at Jamaica, where, you know, I found, I found some evidence that Chinese women in particular, there were a lot more Chinese women than elsewhere, but Chinese women in particular were kind of praised for being a model uh, for the emerging Jamaican nation. This is before independence, so 1930s, 1940s. Um, and, you know, again, it's kind of a, a contrast. This is by planter elite. So, it's a contrast to the former slave population. Um, so it's a way that Asians are used across the region. Um, and that, that one is very much in its beginning stages, but it's um, you know, just a way of picking off, picking some of the themes from the book that I wasn't able to cover in as much depth. And so narrowing the, um, narrowing the chronological scope and expanding the geographical scope to look at three or four places across the Caribbean. Fantastic. We will all look forward to that work. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you.